What happened when the Holy Spirit showed up? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we are picking up the story in Scripture a few days after our last our last episode. Um, you know, Jesus has, has ascended back to the Father. He's commissioned his disciples, but he's also told them to wait. And he's told them to wait for someone very important, the Holy Spirit. And so today, we get to talk about that. What happened when he Exactly. Came. Yeah, last episode, we kind of stuck our big toe into the book of Acts. We straddled looking at Matthew, the Great Commission, and, and Acts 1. Um, and now we dive fully into it with this really important encounter as you're talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand the, the context here. Um, again, we're still in that, that time frame, that, that 50 days or so after the crucifixion and resurrection. Um, again, thinking about the tail end of the Gospels, Jesus has made several appearances to the disciples. We, we saw that again in Acts 1 that we talked about last episode. Um, he's appeared to large crowds, as, as Paul references in Corinthians. Um, and he's commissioned his disciples for their mission He's ascended back into heaven, but as you said, leading off, he, he told him, wait, wait, um, in Jerusalem, and now it is Pentecost, one of these key uh, pilgrim festivals, celebrations, where the city just overflowed with people, Jews returning to celebrate, and so that's the stage that is set for what we're going to look at today. Yeah, and so um, be our our discussion is going to really encompass the whole, um, the majority of the chapter. So we can't really read the whole thing um, largely because we don't want the the entire podcast to take an hour to an hour and a half. But just listen to the first few verses of this, okay? So when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were they that is the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like that of a ru- violent rushing wind came from heaven and and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues or in some translations different languages as the Spirit enabled them. So that's just where we're we're going to stop for now because that sets the stage for everything else that comes after when the people, when the people in the in Jerusalem who are there for the festival, um, here they, you know, they start wondering what's going on, and then Peter gets the the chance to uh, preach one of his best sermons, um, where we get to see Peter acting not like a bonehead, and that's pretty great. So. Exactly, which which is tied in what we just talked about. It's what's the difference? It's the, the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. So. Uh, <laughs> so as we look at this, um, the. You know, what kind of questions should we be asking as we as we study the whole chapter? Well, the first one I think is one we could we could read over in our haste and and finding other really important things as well. But why Pentecost? Why did God's plan have the church beginning? Because this is what this is. This is the start of the church. Why was Pentecost uh, chosen by God as the start of the church? 
And it makes sense when you think about it. And, and I think it adds another layer of meaning to this because Pentecost was when Israel um, remembered the giving of the law, celebrated God giving the law to the people through Moses. So it's the giving, the establishment of the old covenant. It makes sense then that God would choose Pentecost to uh, begin the new covenant, what Jesus came to, to begin, beginning the church. So he's giving grace to his people through Christ in this new covenant period of time. So there's a connection there that's really important, really helpful, uh, that God, I believe, is intentionally connecting, drawing out for us here. Pentecost, not accidental. It was intentional that they waited for this day. I'm glad you brought up the meaning of of Pentecost initially, uh, because a lot of us, like, I honestly don't remember ever having anyone teach what that is about. Um, you know, it just hasn't come up. And so yeah. that is, uh, that's something that a lot of people um, who maybe are listening, certainly people that, uh, you know, if we lead a small group and we're, or, or anything like that, and we're going through this, we wouldn't necessarily know what is going on there. So, um, so it could seem like it's just another day, another festival. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. As opposed to something very, very significant. So another question that we should be asking here is, is why was the Holy Spirit given in the way that he was? And so um, what we get here are we get both visible and audible evidence that he had that he had arrived and that there was an important change. Then this was really this was really happening um, in large part for the benefit of the disciples, because they were the ones who were seeing most of this and hearing most of it. Um it's also doing a couple of things, uh, a couple other things that are happening. Um, for example, you know, we we can recall um, when John the Baptist started his ministry, he was saying, you know, the one who comes after me um, is is uh, is greater than me. I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what do we see? We see the Holy Spirit yeah. appear as tongues, as as though flames over people, thus giving a visual fulfillment of that um, in an interesting kind of way. Um, but it also echoes back to the giving of the law to Moses. I mean, at Sinai, we we see thunder and lightning. So again, there's audible and visual evidence for what's going on there. And then it, it was also very practically, it caught the attention of people. So as we move outside of the room, um, all the all the disciples are astounded hearing themselves, you know, hearing themselves. But the, the people out in the street are also astounded because they hear it yeah. too. Yeah. And right here, these first two questions we can lead off with, and, and I think we're gonna have several questions as we dive into this passage. But the first two you know, we are, uh, we are prone to really appreciate these questions because the answers remind us of the one story of Scripture. Um, how when we read this text in Acts 2, really to understand in its fullness, we have to go all the way back into the Old Testament. We have to go back into the Gospels, that it's one story. And these connecting points just add so much more substance and depth to what we're reading here. Mm. Um, the, the third question is, what were the different tongues and we have to interact with this nothing one. It's a like bit a little bit of uh, controversial a little concept. controversy uh, but there are a couple of different ways to understand this 
Uh, one would be that these were spiritual languages. So what were the disciples speaking? They would say that this was spiritual languages. So it was not uh, the languages of the people in that day. It would have been a spiritual language. And people who would hold to this uh, would point to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 as a passage to support this idea. There Paul is, is writing, he says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love. I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. So they would look and say, here is an example of this, the spiritual languages that are in existence and proof evidence of the giving of the Holy Spirit was manifested in this spiritual language. So that's the first way to answer this question. The second way is these were known languages. Mm -hmm. It was the languages of the people. So in, in that day, Whatever, again, you have all these Jews coming from all around the world speaking different languages where they are coming from, and the disciples then were speaking those languages. If you look at verses 6 and 11, it seems to support that idea because the people don't say, what are these strange languages we don't understand, we've never heard before. They say, what are these languages? They're speaking our, our languages. How yeah. can that happen? They're, they're just Galileans. So the, the basic reading of the text seems to lean that direction. Yeah. Um, People who would hold to this position would say in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, for example, they would say, well, uh, there may not be spiritual languages. Angelic tongues could have been hyperbole that Paul was using, that he's being, and Paul does this elsewhere. Just to make his point, he's, he's being absurd. If I speak in a human or even, let's be absurd, even an angelic language, but don't have love, it's meaningless. So th those are the two camps, again, controversial uh, for here, I think, again, the safer interpretation is the known languages, but the, 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 those who would say that these were spiritual languages would also draw from other places in Scripture beyond 1, 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, just right. to be fair. Um, but again, yeah. here it seems to be, my, my two cents, it seems to be known languages here. Yeah, certainly. And, and I mean, there's also that, there's also that extra camp that, uh, you know, one, you know, is kind of, kind of going, going for the both and. Um, so, I mean, they could see it as um, in this instance, yeah. known languages, but also, you know, they can also argue, you know, that the spirit was also working in the crowd to let them understand. Yeah. And there's a lot of yeah. openness in terms of possibility. Um, yeah, that's a know. good, that's a good point, Aaron. Yeah. Some, so those who would hold to spiritual languages as tongues being a, a gift, uh, would not necessarily, that does not require them to read that here. You yes. could read this as known languages and still believe in spiritual languages and tongues from other places. That's a, that's a good, important word. Yeah. Now, the, the next question really stems from this, though, which is what is the significance of this miracle of speaking in tongues? And, um, and so... Uh, there's, there's practical means to this. There's larger, there's larger theological significance to it as well. But from a practical perspective in that moment, it was so that the gospel could be proclaimed and supported, um, to all who were present, all could hear, all could, all who were, who were there heard what was going on and it drew them in to, as the disciples were, were praising God. And then we get then we get Peter giving his giving his grand sermon, um, and you know we saw and we do see the the fruit of that a little bit later, and we'll talk about that in a in a minute. But theologically, there's a there's also a callback 
to the Tower, the Tower of Babel. So um, this was that moment where God separated the people who were united in their sin and their arrogance and their defiance of him. And he, he divided them by their language so that not ever, so that they could not be united in that way. And so now God is reuniting them because of the humility of Christ and because of the gospel and through the gospel. And so that's a, that's a beautiful picture for us that, um, and we see that play out later as, you know, as the, the gospel goes forward from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that the gospel is the, the thing that unites humanity. Um, people from every tribe, tongue, and language in the, in the, the language of scripture um, are all one in Christ. And so yeah. this, is, this is a hint of that. In a really again another callback, yeah another callback is and we're going to continue because as we get into Peter's sermon, he's going to reference the Old Testament three times. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know this is just a great passage to remind us of the value again of, of reading Scripture in its entirety and seeing it as one complete story. So you know moving forward, so so we hear this these tongues and and you just explain why it seems God you know did provided the spirit in this way. But notice in verse 13, the crowd does not, or at least some of the crowd does, it's a little bit cynical. Uh, they accuse the disciples of being drunk. Mm-hmm. And you have to ask why? Well, I mean, Peter says how illogical it was because it was early in the morning. Um, says, hey, it's, it, like it's 9 really a.m. Come on. Yeah, come on. It wasn't it 2020, just, it re- guys. It was not <laughs> exactly. It, it just reminds us of the hardness of the heart of unregenerate people, that they will take something that is pretty apparent and they will excuse it away in one shape, way, shape, or form. So they they kind of push back, say, you guys are drunk. And then Peter begins preaching. And I think we have to ask, okay, why did Peter begin preaching? Um, we have seen him in the Gospels act as the unofficial spokesperson of the disciples so often, sometimes to his benefit, you know, he does it in a good way, sometimes not as much so. Uh, but here it seems like it's being formalized. Remember in Matthew 16, where, where Jesus referencing Peter says that he's going to play the significant role in the start of the church. And we see that start to take shape from this moment through the first several chapters of Acts, where he is the primary leader of this early church. And so it makes sense that he would be the one who, who takes this role of being the primary preacher. And one of the first things he does is he's going to quote Joel in verses 17 through 21. And he does that because Joel's prophecy speaks of these last days with accompanying signs. And Peter is showing them what they're experiencing, these signs they're seeing, including tongues, is evidence that we're in those last days, that the Spirit has been poured out, that miracles would happen. And that's what we're going to see in Acts following this. We've seen it in the life of Christ. We're going to see it through the church in early Acts. And people would be saved. And there's the key that God's redemptive work has come to a new new part in this plan. We're in these last days. The new covenant has come. And so Peter begins his sermon basically by pulling the attention of the crowd back so that they can look forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is... That's something that's important for us. That's, That's really, I mean, what we do today whenever we... whenever we teach the Bible is, I mean, we're looking back at the whole thing. 
Um, but we're doing that so that we can help people see how God is still at work, how this mission is not done yet as well. And so we need people to re- we need people to remember that that it's like this whenever we whenever we come to the Bible, the goal is not just for us to learn things, but it, it's it's to drive us toward fulfilling our calling in our part of the of this gospel mission that will continue until the day Christ returns. Yeah. So um, another question that that is worth exploring in this passage, and there's so much here in this, like. There's just a lot yeah. in, in Acts 2. Um, you could spend weeks just going through every little bit of, of Peter's sermon and teasing out some pretty pretty amazing things. Um, but one of those big, big ideas is really um, the significance of his theology that we see in verses 22 through 24. And so there he's talking about how God had had this plan from the beginning to rescue people uh, through the death of Jesus. But he also says, and you guys killed him. And so he's like, you did it. You wanted to do it. You're responsible for it, but God intended it. And so that is a tension for us. And that leads to... Um, some very particular theological squabbles that um, that <laughs> um, exist in the world, and um, you guys are welcome to go and read about that somewhere else and come to your own conclusions on that because we're not talking about that today. But um, but no, because we, we have another we have another conscientious part of this that we <laughs> we have to come to. Still, we we so. have some contentious stuff still. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's true. Um, so, but, uh, and we've already dealt with one of those. So, so, you know, we're just gonna, we're just gonna give ourselves a, a, some grace today, but, um, but understanding that there is this tension that we feel as linear, finite beings, that it doesn't seem to make sense that someone can plan something, but we can also be, but, but that we would be responsible for that. That doesn't seem yeah. to make sense to us. And yet for God, that that is not an issue because he plans the ends and the means. Um, both, both the fact that God is sovereign, that he has authority over all things, that and that humans are responsible and make meaningful choices. Those are not in conflict. And, um, and because both work together, both are true. And so we need to hold those two things together uh, the way that scripture does. Yeah. All right. So do we want to keep being controversial? Yeah, go ahead and um, go ahead and, and, and talk about why Peter quoted the two Psalms. And then I'll, I'll stick my nose into the next one. Nice. Thank you for uh, saving me from from the extra controversy. I, I appreciate it. There you go. Uh, you I get will. two out of three. So uh, there you go. <laughs> all right. So in this in this sermon, uh, Peter also quotes does quote these two psalms. He quotes Psalm sixteen eight through eleven, and he quotes Psalm one hundred and ten. And so why does he do these things? Well, with Psalm sixteen, he quote he quotes this one to affirm the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, would not decay. He would not stay dead. Um, and so they sh- so readers of the Bible in that time, um, God's people, they should have known that 
the the Messiah was not an ordinary person. I mean, we die and we stay dead. We we yeah. decay in the ground, but he did not. When it comes to Psalm 110 verse 1, he was saying he was quoting this to affirm Jesus' victory over sin and death that and some might read that and and if they had that understanding that this was a messianic uh that this was a messianic psalm um they may have thought that it meant that the messiah would not have been killed and that if he was killed that would be a defeat but peter wanted to show that victory actually came through death but death wasn't the end yeah, I just love how Peter treats the Old Testament and just the logic he employs with these. And again, you know, we're, we're serious about this. It sounds like we were joking earlier, but we're serious. You see a different Peter here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the contrast between the Peter we see in the Gospels just before this and here is stark. And the difference is the Holy Spirit. It is We are seeing the evidence of the Holy Spirit guiding Peter, who's now filled with the Spirit, uh, permanently received the Spirit, we see this stark change in him, the way he's, he's, he's teaching, his boldness. This is the same Peter that was hiding just 50 days before this. He is bold, and, and it's this change of the Spirit in him and through him. So the last question I think we need to explore uh, with trepidation is uh, <laughs> verse 38. Uh, when you see Peter, when the people respond to his, his powerful sermon and say, what, what do we have to do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. So the question is, was Peter saying that baptism, water baptism, is necessary for salvation? I think you have three basic ways to explain this. The first one is, yes. The most obvious way to read this he says, you have to repent, you have to be baptized, it is required. So some, de- some denominations would use this, among other verses, to argue that water baptism is required for salvation. You're not saved until you are baptized. I would not fall there, no. um, but others do. The second would be, yes, he is saying it's necessary, but we have to explain it. it it's not as straightforward, as simple as that first camp would make it. Um, they would say that Peter is seeing baptism as the profession of faith that the Bible requires. The Bible says, unless you believe, unless you have faith, unless you profess that faith, you're not saved. Romans, for example, where, where Paul writes about this. A lot of people in the church today would say that that profession is walking an aisle or, or praying a prayer. This group would say, no, it's the baptism that mm-hmm. is the confession. So does baptism itself, does getting into the water and being baptized save you? No, not in itself, not that act, but that is the profession that is required that does save. So without baptism, there is no profession. Without a profession, there's no salvation. So this group would say, you know, a lot of us in the church today, uh, we have lowered the meaning of baptism. We've treating it. We, mm-hmm. we're, we treat it too ordinary, and it's safe for us. The early church. Think about the early church. For them to be baptized, and this is what happens here at Pentecost. They were risking their lives because their baptism was their way of saying, "I identify with this Jesus who was just crucified." 
um, later when, when Rome is upset with the early church to be baptized, you're saying, I'm, I'm identifying with this group of people who are against Rome, or it seems to be against Rome. It could cost your life. So you can understand why that's a profession. Is it one thing, you know, think about somebody in the crowd that day and they said, yeah, okay, I'm good. I want to, I believe in Jesus. I trust in him, but I'm not going to go be baptized because I'm afraid. I think yeah. Peter and them would have had cause to say, wait a minute, but do you really believe that? If you're not yeah. willing to do this, do you, do you really trust? Do you really believe? That, that baptism was that profession, was that evidence. And so again, this camp would say, yes, Peter means this, what he says, but we can't go too far and believe that he's saying there's something salvific about being in water itself. There's a nuance there that we have to understand. Right. The third camp would say, no, both of you first two camps, you're going too far with this. Baptism, water baptism is not required for salvation. We see it elsewhere in scripture. Uh, salvation is by, by grace alone through faith. Um, and they would look at this text and they would say, what's going on here is a, a word translation issue that the word for in the Greek could also be translated because of. So they would say, you could read this as Peter saying, repent and be baptized um, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. So you're baptized because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be their argument. They would say, no, baptism is simply an act of obedience. One of the first acts of obedience important but there's nothing at all saving about it. So going through this really quick, and again, this was a high level, really quick. Yeah, um, we'll have to talk about it a little bit later when we actually do an episode specifically on baptism. And so that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think, you know, especially that second camp, that this first, the first and last, I think you can try to understand a little bit more simply Mm -hmm. uh, don't have to necessarily agree with it, but it's, it's easier to understand. Okay. I, I get why they would say yes, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah. I get why they say no, whether you agree with it or not. That middle one is the one that's a little bit more hard to pin down. And so a lot of people listening might be able to say, yeah, I still don't quite understand that one. It still seems like, you know, the nuances are lost on me. I don't quite get, um, it seems like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Yes, it's needed, but no, it's not. Uh, because there's a lot more there that that you could get into. Um, but I think all three of these, again, are camps that are held quite a bit. Um, I personally struggle between that second and third. I, I don't mm -hmm. fall in the first one myself. I, for many, for the longest time, I was in the third camp, but I find myself being drawn more into the second camp um, as, as I continue to kind of learn and, and grow. Yeah. And, and I might, and, and, I would straddle something like that. Maybe it's a nuanced uh, fourth way uh, is, is what we would call it. Um, you know, certainly there is there's something very important and critical. I mean, yeah. Jesus included baptism in the Great in the Commission. Commission for a reason. But we also see from Scripture examples where People believed and were never baptized, but were welcomed into the kingdom. So yeah. think about the 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 thief on the cross. As now, is that an example of you know the the um, the exception that proves the rule? Um, I mean, some people can make that case too, and but we'll get there eventually yeah. when we talk about that. So uh, so yeah, for now, I let's think... let's just let's stir yeah. the pot. <laughs> yeah, and, and let me just say this, and then we can move on. I think the appeal of this second camp, the reason why I'm kind of finding myself drawn to it, not only looking, again, as you were saying, Aaron, 
you just look through Acts, and baptism is, I mean, it is tied more tightly to salvation than we kind of think about it today. And I think the third camp may be a reaction to the first camp. A lot of people says, no, it's not needed. It's, it's reacting. It's Dang it. Yeah. Did you pause your... We look at that third hmm. camp, and I think it's a lot of people pushing back toward that first camp. Maybe too strenuously so. And in my estimation, a lot of times the, the fruit of this has been we have devalued baptism too much. It's ironic, Aaron, you and I both attend Baptist churches. It's in our name. And yet baptism is not really mm-hmm. held as highly as maybe it could be or should be in many of our Baptist churches. It, it has become that, yeah, you should do this. And I think the second camp is, is an effort to try to return to a, a more robust doctrine of baptism and understand, no, it's, while it's not vital for salvation, as that first camp might say, it's not this nice add-on as some in the third might be making a mistake going too far. That's, there, it's gotta be, there's got to be yeah. more weight to it. And what is that weight? What, what is its purpose? And so I, it, it, it really a, a, appeals to me for that reason as I try to wrestle with this and come to a better understanding of baptism. For sure. Oh, and you know, I don't think that, I don't think honestly any of us are going to get it entirely right. Um, and you know, the, but that's just the reality of so much of the Christian life is, you know, we're going to, we're going, we're guessing at some of it. We're going to get it wrong. Um, or we'll find out that it was actually pretty open handed. (laughs) And so we're all kind of right. It's complicated. uh, In this verse, it's complicated. And there are many other verses that are complicated. So yeah, this is not an easy, yeah. Yes. No. So, all right. So, uh, let's think about this. Let's think about Acts 2 from a discipleship perspective. What kind of guidance can we offer our listeners? Yeah, well, let me just pick up two of them real quick. We, we've hit on these before, but um, mm-hmm. the first one we've, we've said several times, this is a great passage to remind us of our need to read the Old Testament and New Testament in, in light of each other, in, in combination. Uh, we, we said, you know, it's important to understand what Pentecost was, uh, the giving of tongues in the Tower of Babel, as we talked about, Peter's use of the Old Testament. Uh, several places in here, we see the need to read this in light of what we've read before elsewhere. So a great example as we're discipling others, we, we can help them remember this. Um, and then also, uh, this, as we talked about, there are three parts of this, at least, that are challenging. Um, the tongues that we talked about, baptism we just talked about, and what we kind of glossed over, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fused together and how that works. And so we need to wrestle with these things. And this is a good example when we read this to stretch our disciples so that they, they if they have a overly simplistic understanding of scripture, oh, this is easy, you know, oh, I know where I stand on baptism, um, I know where I stand on tongues and so forth. Maybe this is a good reminder of let's not be puffed up in arrogance thinking we've got this understood. And let's extend grace to people who disagree mm-hmm. with us. There's good arguments to be made for these things, even the other positions we may not hold. And so this is another passage which forces us um, to seek humble, deeper understanding of scripture and understand, man, there is so much in scripture that can give us headaches as we try to understand and let's be gracious with one another. 
Yeah. And one other thing that it, that it, that it does as well. And, um, it really is. And this is important for when you're, especially when you're discipling someone who is new to the faith or, or has grown up in the church, but maybe you're not actually sure. Um, about what's going on, like if there's a genuine profession of faith that that is there, or a genuine faith that's there, um, we don't want to forget the power of the gospel, and that's what this this passage reminds us of. Both for those who those who are believers and those who who are not yet, that um, you know we see the fruit of of Peter's of Peter's preaching, and three thousand people. Were, were saved that day. 3,000 people were added to the body of Christ. And the gospel, and the gospel is what did that. It wasn't because Peter was particularly eloquent, although he was surprisingly eloquent, um, you know, given his history. Um, but um, but this is the thing. It, it had nothing to do with him. It was the, It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we, and, and that, but that's what the gospel does. The Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel unifies the church and grows the church. And we need to remember that as we make disciples is that our job as disciple makers is not to unify and grow people in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to trust the Holy Spirit in that because he will bring the growth. He will do the work. And so we need to be faithful to point people to Jesus every time that we are uh, that that yeah. we are with them. So, all right. Well, Brian, this has been a uh, a really interesting and challenging passage to talk through. Honestly, it uh, it was a lot. Uh, it was a bigger conversation than I than I expected we were going to have. So. Uh, but thanks for chatting about this, and thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.